If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Elizabeth herself once said, a thousand eyes see all I do, and that summed up her life at court. She was never alone. That was Tracy Borman talking to us about the private lives of the Tudors. The king was completely defeated in battle, the king was taken prisoner, Um, His son and his brother, Richard of Cornwall, were all taken prisoner by the barons. And for the next year, Simon de Montfort and the barons rule, in effect, rather like Oliver Cromwell in the 1640s, they rule as a military dictatorship. And that was Nicholas Vincent, on location at Kenilworth Castle. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of June 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The Tudor monarchs are some of the most written about characters in English history, but how well do we really understand the personalities of Henry VIII, Mary Tudor, Elizabeth I et al? According to historian Tracy Borman, there is still a significant gulf between the popular image of these kings and queens and the reality. She pursues this theme in a new book and TV series, both entitled The Private Lives of the Tudors, as well as in an article for our June edition. Our acting deputy editor, Sue Wingrove, caught up with Tracy to find out more. Um, Now, in our June issue, you've written a feature looking at Tudor monarchs from a new angle. You've gone behind closed doors to find out more about how they lived their lives out of the public spotlight. In doing so, you cast new light on their characters, comparing the public myth with the private truths. Could you tell us a little more about how you approached the subject? Absolutely. Well, this was a very different and actually a very exciting book for me to write because so far in my um, writing career, I focused very much on the public facing nature of monarchy, uh, the sort of politics of court, the personalities of the monarchs themselves. But working at historic royal palaces, as I do, I am lucky enough to go behind closed doors a lot of the time. You know, those doors marked private that everybody wants to glimpse behind. And it inspired me really to, in my writing, go behind closed doors. So to find out how the Tudor monarchs really lived when they weren't in the glare of the court. And the answer was was quite startling, actually, because you see them in a totally different light and you get to find out their worst habits and their darkest secrets. And it was absolutely fascinating for me. Um, as a, a royal historian, I found out so much more than I thought I ever would. So, um, yeah, you make the point that there's a real difference between the image that they like to project uh, about themselves and the reality of what they were really like in private. Um, I'm just taking, for example, Henry VIII. You can see why perhaps the kingly image that he wanted to project was not quite how he was behind closed doors. Tell us a bit about his about some of his nasty little habits. I think Henry VIII was probably my favourite to research because it was the biggest difference between the public facade and the private truth. Well, Henry, uh, yes, he liked to be projected as this mighty monarch. He was this Adonis of a young king when he came to the throne and loved jousting and hunting and, and women and everything else. But the, the private truth, even from 
the earliest days of his reign, when he was in very good state of health, was that he was a hypochondriac. He was paranoid about his health. Uh, he meddled in sort of private remedies himself and different concoctions, weird, weird and wonderful. And he did, as his reign progressed, start to suffer from poor health. Um, and a lot of this was down to his diet. So, in public, he had no trouble, you know, gorging on the, the great feasts that were on offer at Hampton Court and his other palaces. But in private, he paid for it. So, uh, with stomach pains, I'm afraid it's not very glamorous, but he suffered from constipation for most of his reign, uh, not helped by the fact that he was such a great uh, meat eater and would eat a staggering quantity of venison and beef and all of the other fine meats that were on offer at the palaces, all washed down, not with water, which may have helped, but with uh, wine and ale and other alcohol. So poor old Henry did suffer in that respect. And it's not quite the image that is portrayed in, you know, the great portraits by Holbein and uh, the majestic, the invincible Henry VIII that we all know. So if they're obviously their nearest and dearest or their, their nearest um, assistants or servants were in, in, you know, in receipt of this knowledge, did this sort of get out amongst the wider court or the wider population? How secret were these sorts of informations? Well, not everything uh, remained a secret because, of course, there was endless gossip at court. And so um, the fact that the groom of the stool, who was the most intimate of the body servants, would report to some of the king's uh, most high profile ministers meant that, of course, things leaked out. So, for example, on one notorious occasion, Thomas Henniage, who was a groom of the stool in uh, the later years of Henry's reign, reported to Thomas Cromwell, the all powerful minister about a particular bowel movement of the kings. And uh, this, of course, then uh, caught the notice of uh, visiting ambassadors and they heard of it. And it was reported because, of course, it hinted that the king was in poor health. But mostly, they uh, that the private life of the king did remain just that. Um, he would only appoint people to serve him in his privy chamber who were of proven trustworthiness and discretion. And so they guarded the king's secrets with their lives. And that ensured that for, for the most part, they may have written about uh, the king's personal habits, but those letters did not get out into the public court. So it was you know, just an absolute joy and endlessly fascinating to discover this correspondence. So they, their, their retainers were very trustworthy. They were obviously vetted thoroughly. Um, but they obviously had, as you say, a huge amount of power. And did this power translate into political capital in the life of the court? It absolutely did, because um, positions such as the groom of the stool, even though it seems on paper to be one of the least savoury jobs you could have had, because effectively you're following the king into his toilet and um, sort of staying with him throughout uh, his time there and then, um, you know, wiping the royal posterior afterwards. So it doesn't sound like that appealing a job. But in fact, it was because it was the only job at court that guaranteed close and very regular access to the king. Uh, so the groom of the stall would be there when nobody else was. He would be in sole attendance upon his royal master. So you can imagine the political importance that came with that role because he would find out the king's secrets. He would uh, consult the king and the king would betray his thoughts on a whole manner of things, not just his personal health. And so the groom of the stool was probably one of the best informed members of the court. And he also could control access to the king. And access was key. You know, this can't be emphasised enough. If you wanted to rise to greatness at court, you had to have close and regular access to the king. And the groom of the stool could facilitate that. So this is when you get a sort of um, blurring of division between the public and the private worlds. When you get the likes of Thomas Cromwell and 
uh, even Wolsey, needing access to the king. And it was the king's personal body servants who could provide that access. Were there any instances where they were famously indiscreet or they betrayed the royal trust? Well, I guess the most famous incident of betrayal was Henry Norris, who was another of the grooms of the stall. He was um, a great favourite of Henry VIII, but he was also a great favourite of Henry's notorious second wife, Anne Boleyn. And whether or not there was any justification uh, for what Norris was later accused of, of actually having adultery with the Queen, well, I think that's rather dubious. But certainly, Henry chose to believe it. And Norris, of course, lost his life for it. He, he paid the ultimate penalty for daring to cross the line uh, when it came to Anne Boleyn. So being loyal was really something that you would want to be because you knew what the consequences were. I mean, that's a powerful motive for, for loyalty, isn't it? If you know that you, you could actually lose your head. Absolutely. And, and everybody was painfully aware of that at Henry's court. The closer you got to the king, the greater the danger. You had to be prepared to pay with your life if you did overstep the boundaries that were expected of your position. Now, um, Obviously, some of these retainers were uh, with, their, with, the, with the king or the queen for quite a long time. And you mentioned in the case of Elizabeth I that her, her nurse, Blanche Parry, uh, served for 57 years, um, which implies that they had not just a relationship based on trust, but also on affection. Absolutely. And, and Blanche is an excellent example, really, of a private attendant because they were intensely loyal these servants. Um, only a handful were really out for personal gain. Most of them were prepared to sacrifice everything uh, in the service of their monarch. And Blanche was a shining example of that. She didn't marry, she didn't have children. She just dedicated her life to serving Elizabeth. And she was this constant reassuring presence from the time of Elizabeth's birth up until the very late years of Elizabeth's reign. As you say, she served her for almost 60 years. It was an extraordinary contribution to Elizabeth's life and I think a really important stabilising influence for the Virgin Queen. Yeah. Um, also talking of Elizabeth I, I believe that she actually um, was, was, was never alone. I mean, you cite the example of her having a, even having a servant sleeping at the end of the bed. Elizabeth herself once said, a thousand eyes see all I do. And that summed up her life at court. She was never alone. Um, you're quite right. There was a, a lady who would sleep at the end of Elizabeth's bed on a little pallet bed. She was attended at all hours of the day and night. And now, when Elizabeth said that famous quote about a thousand eyes watching her, it was in her defence because, of course, there were many, many rumours about her relationship with her various male courtiers, most notably Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, um, who she was believed to have conducted a very long-standing affair with. Well, in, in stressing her um, chastity and, and her virtue, Elizabeth called as witnesses, really, those thousand eyes, those, those women who were always in attendance. And she quite rightly said, how on earth could I have an affair, even if I wanted to? I am never alone. Was this one reason why she was never alone? I mean, did she not feel that she would like to be alone, as we all do sometimes? Or did she really feel that she needed someone to literally witness every second of her waking and sleeping day? I mean, to us, I certainly, um, when I was researching this, I thought, gosh, it must have been awful to never been alone. <laughs> Sometimes you just crave your own company. But I think it was a very different life. As a Tudor monarch, they would have been surrounded by attendants from birth. So it have felt very odd to them, I think, and probably quite unstable and, and dangerous if they'd ever been alone. Because especially with Elizabeth, who was constantly under threat of assassination, thanks to the Pope communicating her and basically encouraging her Catholic subjects to try to kill her. So she would have probably felt very insecure if she'd been on, on her own. Um, and also a, a monarch didn't do anything for themselves. Um, they didn't dress themselves, they didn't go to the toilet on, the, on their own, and they didn't serve themselves at mealtime. So of necessity, they needed to be surrounded. 
Indeed. Um, it's a very different view of privacy. I mean, we expect to know some details about our royal family, but there's a certain point about which you just think, no, that's their own private life. And I remember a few years ago, there was a complete furore when um, I, I believe some photographs of the Queen's breakfast table uh, came into the public domain. And the nation was astounded to find that she used Tupperware. And for some reason, everyone kept kept going around saying, the Queen uses Tupperware. And so there's something fascinating, isn't there, about these little details of, of private lives? There is, absolutely. And, and the Tupperware example is a brilliant one because somehow you don't expect any sign of normality uh, in, a, in a person's life. But of course, and, and what really came across when I was doing my research is that these iconic monarchs, I mean, the Tudors are the most famous royal dynasty, I think, in history, but they were human as well. They still needed to fulfill their basic human functions. They still needed to clean their teeth and take their makeup off in Elizabeth's case and all of those sort of ordinary things, really, that you somehow expect uh, these godlike beings to be exempt from. Now, I wanted to turn now to how we perceive these characters. Um, did you think that after examining some of the characters here, you changed your impression of whether you liked them or whether they were a slightly nicer or less likeable person in themselves? I think I did, um, probably for all of the Tudors, actually, although just to draw on a couple of examples, the first Tudor, so Henry VII, of course, he's always overshadowed by his more famous son, larger-than-life character Henry VIII. But um, Henry VII was an interesting one, and not as as dour and, frankly, quite boring as I've been long um, thinking of him, because uh, he certainly enjoyed uh, many of the pleasures that were more associated with his son. So he enjoyed the company of women. Um, he was quite a passionate man, may have got his wife pregnant before they were actually married. He enjoyed sports. He was a great um, athlete, uh, liked to play tennis in particular, and loved to gamble. And so all of this flew in the face of the Henry VII I thought I knew. Um, a more tragic example, really, was uh, Mary I, Bloody Mary, as she is known, who hasn't enjoyed a very favourable reputation in history. But you really understand her motivation when you examine Mary's private life and her private fears and desires. And her number one desire was to have a child. She was, as well as needing it for dynastic reasons, she was intensely maternal and tried desperately and hoped desperately for a child by her husband, Philip of Spain, but suffered two very humiliating phantom pregnancies um, during her reign. And, and just examining the accounts of her ladies and, and the visiting ambassadors to her privy chamber just conveys just how painful these episodes were for Mary. And you do really feel for her um, by the end of her reign, when particularly the second of those pregnancies or phantom pregnancies was probably a tumour uh, that was just slowly killing her. It wasn't a baby at all. Um, and, and it's just such a sad story. And so I did sympathise with Mary an awful lot more than I have in the past. Now, turning now to your book, which is The Private Lives of the Tudors, uh, which is out now, uh, this continues the theme. What originally gave you the idea for your book? Well, the idea for my book came probably from the research that I've done into uh, the life of Elizabeth I, because I wrote a book about Elizabeth's women, and a lot of that um, focused on her personal servants. And I just thought this presents such a dramatic contrast to the Virgin Queen and Gloriana that I thought I knew, that I wonder about the other Tudor monarchs too. And as I said earlier, I think working for historic royal palaces and, and going behind closed doors has been such a revelation for me. And seeing the sort of physical manifestation of their private rooms inspired me to find out more about their private lives and to just tell a different story of the world's most famous dynasty. And what types of sources did you look at then to get this type of information? 
Well, the correspondence of the time for the servants at court is incredibly rich um, because the Privy Chamber staff were so important and they did write letters and they did um, write accounts of their time at court, not as sort of memoirs, but more for practical reasons. You know, they made a note of the various ministrations that uh, they had overseen, for example, with uh, Henry VIII when he was unwell. And there were also um, letters between ambassadors and members of the Privy Chamber. There are accounts, for example, during Elizabeth's reign, when all of the focus was on who she was going to marry. Uh, One a rather enterprising ambassador actually bribed a laundress to report on the state of Her Majesty's sheets so that he could see whether she was functioning normally as a woman. So there's just incredibly rich material. And it was an absolute joy to be able to look at it afresh because the bulk of the research on the Tudors has been from a political perspective or, or just straight biographies. So exploring the sort of the, the darker and sometimes seedier side of Tudor life was fascinating. And um, did the royals keep uh, personal diaries at all or did they have diaries that were sort of public and expected to be very formal? Did they ever commit their own thoughts to paper about their private lives? It's interesting because of all the Tudor monarchs, perhaps the one you would least expect to keep a diary was the only one who did, and that was Prince Edward the Future, a short-lived Edward VI. Now, he started a diary um, when he was only about 11 or 12 years old. Well, even so, you can imagine the excitement I felt upon um, starting to read this diary for the first time, but it's it was soon replaced, I'm afraid, by disappointment. It's a rather dry list of things that happened at court. And even momentous events such as the execution of his uncle, the Duke of Somerset, who was Lord Protector during the early part of Edward's reign, is only afforded a very cursory mention. He just said, you know, Lord Somerset had his head cut off today, you know, and that's it. There's no mention of how that made Edward feel or his his sort of personal fears or hopes or any of that. It's pretty much a, a dry chronicle of his reign. And there are no others, none of the other Tudor monarchs. If they kept a diary, certainly um, kept it for posterity. They haven't survived. Um, and I probably don't think that they, they even attempted to keep a diary. You can, you can imagine just how salacious and how dangerous it would have been in the wrong hands. So there is only Edward's short-lived diary, I'm afraid. Um, And possibly he was, maybe he was self-censoring as he wrote it. He was, or perhaps a tutor had said to him, well, you mustn't write this in your diary. I mean, we can only speculate, can't we? I think that's very likely, though, because Edward was very influenced by his tutors. And in fact, it was one of his tutors who encouraged him to keep the journal in the first place. But I would imagine under very strict supervision. (laughs) Now, and finally... um, Was there anything particularly unexpected or surprising? Um, What was your sort of favourite anecdote that you discovered in your research? Well, there are so many, but I think probably one of the favourite ones for me was about Elizabeth I, because I can really relate to this. I have a terribly sweet tooth, um, so I would quite happily live on cake. Um, And Elizabeth, because of the sudden influx of uh, sugar, to England, thanks to her overseas adventurers, she became very, very fond of all things sweet too. So I think we know this about her. You know, she, her teeth fell out, or were, uh, those that were left were black, and she could hardly be understood because when she spoke because she had so few teeth. But it was discovering just how many things Elizabeth added sugar to that astonished me. So not just chocolates and and sweetmeats and such things. She actually sprinkled sugar over her salads. And I just thought that was wonderful. That's taking sweet tooth just that little bit too far. That was Tracy Borman speaking to Sue Wingrove. Tracy's book, The Private Lives of the Tudors, is out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. In the US, it's due to be published in July, also by Hodder and Stoughton. Tracy's TV series of the same name is set to begin on the 7th of June on the Yesterday channel. And Tracy has also written an article on the Tudor Monarchs for our June issue, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on Operation Barbarossa, Roman Britain, Heritage in Wartime, and the 1980s, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents in the UK, 
and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to hear Tracy in person, then why not come along to one of our History Weekend events? They will be taking place in Winchester from the 7th to the 9th of October, and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. And Tracy's going to be speaking at both of those, alongside a fantastic array of other historians. Head to historyweekend.com for full details of the lineup and to purchase tickets. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Roman tablets unearthed during an excavation in London include the oldest handwritten document ever found in Britain, it has been announced. Some 405 wooden tablets were found under a 1950s office block in the mud of the Lost River Walbrook as the site was being cleared for a new European headquarters for Bloomberg, The Guardian reports. Among the tablets was a legal document carrying a date of the 8th of January, AD 57. This, says the Museum of London Archaeology, is the earliest dated document ever found in the UK. Of the 405 writing tablets found, 87 were successfully deciphered in a process expert Roger Tomlin describes as code-breaking. Sophie Jackson, the director of the Museum of London Archaeology unit that excavated the site, called the tablets the, quote, email of the Roman world. She told The Guardian, they represent the first generation of Londoners speaking to us. In other news, a dagger entombed with King Tutankhamun was made with iron from a meteorite, new analysis has revealed. The iron blade was one of two daggers found alongside the mummified remains of the pharaoh. The intricately decorated object, which had a gold handle, has puzzled researchers since Howard Carter's discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s. Ironwork was rare in ancient Egypt, and the dagger's metal had not rusted. Now, new analysis carried out on the metal composition by Italian and Egyptian researchers quote, strongly suggests an extraterrestrial origin, says The Guardian. The researchers, who have published their findings in the journal Meteorics and Planetary Science, said, as the only two valuable iron artefacts from ancient Egypt so far accurately analysed are of meteoric origin, we suggest that ancient Egyptians attributed great value to meteoric iron for the production of fine ornamental or ceremonial objects. Meanwhile, a major Roman fort designed to keep invaders out of Britain may have been discovered in Lancashire. Archaeologists have found evidence of a Roman wall and road in a field close to Lancaster Castle, believed to be the remnants of a large 4th century shore fort built to stop seaborne raids and emigration, BBC News reports. 
lead archaeologist Jason Wood said, The Romans in the later period, in the 4th century, were particularly concerned with seaborne raiding and immigration. The borders were becoming more porous in the Roman Empire, and these large shore forts were erected around the south, the east, and laterally the west coast of Britain, to control immigration, to control raiding, and to act as supply bases for the army. Wood said it was a remarkable find. For our second interview this week, we're heading to Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire. This medieval fortress played an important role in the Second Barons' War, which saw King Henry III fighting for control of the country against a group of noblemen, led by Simon de Montfort. Exploring these dramatic events at Kenilworth were our production editor, Spencer Misson, and Professor Nicholas Vincent of the University of East Anglia. I think my first question about the Second Barons' War is to go back to the First Barons' War. I mean, could you just explain what happened in that conflict, just to give a bit of context to the Second Barons' War? So, the 13th century, there are endless disputes between the Crown and the Barons. And in theory, they were resolved by Magna Carta and then the death of King John. In 1215 to 1217, there was a big dust-up, big civil war, from which there emerged an idea that king and barons would cooperate. But that isn't really what happened. The king then, King John's son, Henry III, who came to the throne incredibly young, he reigned for over 50 years. It's one of the longest reigns in English history. And that was a reign punctuated by a whole series of disputes over the king's favourites. So the king favoured this faction or that faction. He brought in lots of his foreign relations and friends into England from France. They were desperately unpopular. There was a whole question of who was going to extract the patronage from the king, who was going to get the goodies, who was going to get the money and the castles and the riches. And that ends in 1258 with what, in effect, was a second baronial rebellion, a great uprising by the earls of England where they call the king to account. What is the definition of a baron? I mean, what, what defined a baron from the rest of the population? Technically, a baron is someone who holds their land directly of the king. Now, that can be anybody from a great earl who holds hundreds of knights' fees, several thousand pounds worth of income, land in lots of counties. It can go all the way from someone of that sort of scale down to somebody who really holds very little land from the crown. Right. But let's say... There are about 100, 120 baronies in England, and most of them control between 10 and 20 knights. Right, OK. And um, how many of the barons would have joined the rebellion? Would it have been virtually all of them, or just a small number? It's generally a pretty clear split between those who support the king and those who support the barons. I suppose that um, actually King John really takes the prize for having stirred up the most barons against him. And even then, it's about two-thirds still supporting the king, about a third who are against the king. Oh, right, so it wasn't a a large number It's definitely not a question of 90% versus 10%. The majority either remain neutral or continue to support the king. They can see the king's resources are so great that in the end he's going to win any of these conflicts. So for the barons who did rebel, the king's actions, were they perceived them as being quite extreme to actually take this, yeah, this it's, action. It's a big, big step. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's almost tantamount to treason. There are rules that govern rebellion. So the barons in the 1260s do actually go through, technically, they go through the process properly to state that they are in a legal rebellion against the king. They go through a thing called diffidation, where they they technically throw off their homage. They they renege on their homage to the king, and the king does the same to them. And that means it's, it's legally, publicly a war. But there is always the risk that they're going to be treated as traitors, that they're going to be treated as people who are just in rebellion against their rightful sovereign. Right. And what kind of man was Henry III? Uh, it depends which historian you ask, but right, okay. some will tell you that he was a wise and sensible man who tried to rule in cooperation with his barons. And some will tell you that he was a bit of an idiot who really didn't know what he was doing, right. who was constantly under the influence of one or other of the great men at his court, and who, through complete financial mismanagement, just straightforward incompetence, got mixed up in all sorts of ventures 
building, great display of art and luxury at court, all sorts of plans to reconquer his family's lands in France. And then from the 1250s onwards, he gets mixed up not just in the idea of crusading to Jerusalem, but he is also mixed up in the idea of crusading in North Africa. And he also then gets mixed up in an attempt to buy the island of Sicily off the Pope. Right. Uh, now, that, even at the time, wasn't seen as necessarily a very good plan. Yeah. Uh, plenty of people around at the time who said, how can you be so daft as to imagine that you can do any of these things, let alone all of them? Yeah. Um, and how did he differ from his father? I mean, King John has, obviously has a certain reputation. Was Did Henry in any way try to, to be different from him, to... Um, you know, did he, try, did, did he try and be the opposite of, father, of his father in some ways? It's tricky, this, because the reputation of King John spirals out of control after King John's death. Right. And, and a bit like the son of any famous father whose father is notorious, think of the sons of Robert Maxwell, yeah. they're, they're mixed in a sort of combination of awe and the, the incredible things their father's done, and then everybody telling them that their father is a total rotter, is a total out-and-out yeah. piece of work. So the, the big differences between Henry III and John, John had a succession of mistresses. As far as we know, Henry III had no mistresses and no bastard children. He's completely uxorious. He's a family man. Right. Um, John scandalously was involved in the murder, not just of barons, but of his own family. He, in theory, killed his nephew, Arthur of Brittany. Nothing like that was ever alleged against Henry III. Right. I, the stories that are told of Henry III are of basically a, a bit of a bore. You go to the king, and he could actually reel off. Matthew Paris, the great chronicler, tells us that Henry III could give you a list of all the barons in England. He actually had them in his head. Oh, right, okay. He could tell you the names of every English saint. Uh, he could tell you the names of all the electors of the Kingdom of Germany. But th that's a sort of, you know, we're in the world of mastermind and there's people who can remember incredible yeah, quantities right, yeah, of information. Yeah. But did what happened in the first Barons' War make the Second one more light war? I think the chances are the first Barons' War really put people off the idea of rebelling. Oh, right, OK. Because the consequences were so severe, and it took such a lot of clearing up afterwards. Yeah. And the actual gains were so minimal for those who'd gone to war. And the, that Barons' War of 1215-1217 followed on from another great war in the 1170s. 1173-4, to there was another of these great rebellions. They come at about 50-year intervals from one another. Yeah. And the reason they come at those <coughs> intervals, I think, is that people who've been mixed up in them and the next generation really don't want to do that again. Right, OK. It really does mess up all plans for the summer holidays. Right, OK. And so, who are the, who? Who was leading the barons? Who are the main players on the in the rebels? Amongst the rebels, uh, there are a series of barons of earls who, in twelve fifty eight, turned up in Westminster Hall armed and demanded that the king reform the realm. Right. And the leader at that stage was the Earl of Norfolk, a man named Roger Bigard. Right. But very quickly, power here falls into the hands of the king's brother-in-law, Simon de Montfort. Now he's a very complicated, really very interesting figure. For a start, he was not English, although he was Earl of Leicester. He was definitely French. His family came from the region just outside Paris, but his father, another Simon de Montfort, had earned an incredible reputation as a crusader in southern France against heresy. Right. He'd taken an army to southern France against the Counts of Toulouse, had captured whole parts of southern France of the county of Toulouse, had slaughtered thousands of people accused of being heretics, and had built up this really fearsome reputation as a crusader in Europe. So Simon had all of that in his baggage too. Just as Henry III had a famous father, King John, yeah. so Simon de Montfort had a father who was a famously orthodox crusader. So had this been brewing between Simon and Henry for a while? Was, was there personal differences that, that played into the rebellion? There were all sorts of um, background disputes before 1258. A large part of that was over money. So Simon de Montfort 
the son de Montfort of Henry III's reign, always felt that he'd been cheated of what was his rightful inheritance. So it took him some time to establish his claims to the Earldom of Leicester. And then he married the king's sister, Eleanor. Now, that marriage was itself complicated because she, in theory, had vowed herself to celibacy following the death of her first husband, William Marshall. She said that she would not marry again. She married clandestinely this young French adventurer, Simon de Montfort, in the 1230s, and that immediately caused a scandal at court. So there was already a, a, a major standoff between Simon and Henry in the 1230s. And then thereafter, although Henry III said he was going to go off and crusade and he was going to do all these incredible things and he could do these things if he put his mind to it, he didn't actually do any of them. Right. Simon de Montfort did. Simon de Montfort was a hero of the crusade. He went on crusade in the 1230s and actually um, took part in campaigns in the Holy Land. And then in the 1250s, he was appointed as the king's chief minister in southern France. The only bits of John's empire that were still under the control of the kings of England, Gascony and those regions around Bordeaux. Now, Simon administered those lands, but under constant interference from Henry III and from local barons who moaned and groaned to Henry III about what Simon was up to. Even at that stage, it's clear that things were not really very good between the two of them. And if I can go on there a little bit, there, there are a couple more interesting points to sure, that. Yeah. One interesting point there is that Simon famously declared as early as the 1250s that Henry the Henry III was incompetent. Henry III, he said, seeing Henry III attempting to campaign in Gascony, Henry III, the king, he said, is an incompetent. He should be locked up like Charles the Simple, should be put away. Right. Sorry, now, who was Charles Simple? He was one of the rubbish kings of France in right. the 10th century. He's one of those kings after Charlemagne who, who really lead to the collapse of the Carolingian Empire. But he was a famous example of an incompetent king in history. And so this is quite an insult, though. Oh, it's an insult. Yeah. Even if it was a joke, it's not the sort of joke that kings generally appreciate. No. And the other thing is that relations between Henry III and his eldest son, Edward I, the future Edward I, were complicated. Because Henry III continued to deny Edward real control, real power over his lands in Ireland and in Chester and in Gascony. And it's clear in the early stages of this rebellion of the 1250s that Edward I looked to Simon de Montfort as a model. This is his favourite uncle. This is the example of a great warrior. This is the sort of father that he would like to have had but didn't. He'd got this rather idiotic father, Henry III. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so Simon was quite a charismatic figure then, basically, yeah. When did the two sides first come to blows and and, and who emerged victorious in the first exchanges? So we have this standoff in 1258 where the barons essentially rebel and they say the king must reform his household. And there are attempts thereafter at reform, and the king issued a series of decrees called the Provisions of Oxford and then the Provisions of Westminster, attempting to reform government. And there followed a period of about three years in which those provisions were argued out and eventually argued out of court by Henry III. Sorry, just to interrupt, what what did the Provisions of Oxford contain? How would they have changed governance in this country? For a start, the king wasn't to rule on his own. He wasn't to do what he wanted to do. He was to do what he did in council with his barons through discussion. And they set up an official committee to govern England. So there are going to be committees of 24 barons or 15 barons who are jointly appointed by the baron and the king, and they will rule England. Above all, those provisions also tried to limit the king's patronage powers. The king obviously has enormous resources, but how those resources are spent should now be decided by the barons in council with the king, not by the king on his own. So they are a real limitation on so royal authority. This is like, um, the end of absolute monarchy if a- it came in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that no king really is going to want, let alone accept. Yeah. This is really pretty severe stuff. Right. Would it have been unique in Europe if that Not quite, because you get countries like Portugal or bits of Spain where there had already been attempts like that to govern through the barons. 
they also, those reforms, contain all sorts of limitations on local government. So who should appoint the sheriffs? What can the sheriffs do? What can the great men themselves do in their counties? How can they actually behave without breaking the law? So they're an attempt to place not just the king, but the very, very powerful of the land under a degree of the rule of law. There's a shadow of Magna Carta looming over this. Yeah, in the background to all of that, Magna Carta is really significant. And one of the things the barons regularly do is reenact Magna Carta. They, they right. demand the reissue and the, the, the holding to Magna Carta. Right. Um, what impressions you get was Henry III's opinion of Magna Carta? Was he, was he scathing or dismissive? Henry III was unbelievably pious. Magna Carta was backed up by all sorts of guarantees by the church. Um, it's very unlikely that Henry III would ever have considered repudiating Magna Carta. The thing was, though, that by the 1250s, 1260s, Magna Carta was already an anachronism. It already was dealing with a situation very different from that that arose in the 1250s. So a lot of the provisions of Magna Carta by the 1250s, 1260s, were really not difficult for any king to accept. They, right. they, they were just the way things were done. The reforms the barons put in place in the 1250s go a lot further to control the king's patronage powers. Right. So we have a standoff period of about three years after 1258. And from that, the king emerges with his powers intact. He basically allows the provisions to wither. Right. The barons fall out with one another and the king regained personal authority. The only baronial leader who stood out against him was Simon de Montfort, and from 1263 onwards, de Montfort began building up an, a, a really armed opposition to the king, a real rebel army, rather than this negotiated reform of 1258. And that came to a head in, 1250, in, in 1263, when um, there was an attempt to reissue the provisions of Westminster, provisions of Oxford, when there was an attempt to seek arbitration from the King of France. The King of France ruled entirely in favour of the King of England, who was his brother-in-law, and Simon de Montfort and his supporters then go into armed rebellion. Right, okay. Where is Simon de Montfort's power base? Where is he based at the time? Very much where we are at the moment in the sort of Midlands region yeah. of England. So Simon's great, great city, great town, is Leicester, He's right. Earl of Leicester. Yeah. He controls the, the town of Leicester. He does all sorts of things in Leicester, including expelling the Jews from Leicester. Right. He's fiercely anti-Semitic. He's yeah. fiercely anti-heretical. He's a very fierce person. Yeah. And then in the 1240s, um, this place where we are now, Kenilworth Castle, was rebuilt by Henry III and in the early 1250s given to Simon de Montfort as part of the financial settlement between right. Henry and his brother-in-law. So the firm, first main clash, what, what happens? Simon rebelled against the king, gathered an army. Uh, the army uh, was first attacked at Northampton by the king. And then um, the Londoners joined Simon de Montfort and they confronted the king at Lewis in Sussex. Yeah. And the outcome of that in May 1264 was that the king was completely defeated in battle. The king was taken prisoner. Um, his son and his brother, Richard of Cornwall, were all taken prisoner by the barons. And for the next year, Simon de Montfort and the barons rule, in effect, rather like Oliver Cromwell in the 1640s, they rule as a military dictatorship. With so the that's king. quite an incredible occurrence, yep. isn't it? Why doesn't this get greater coverage? I think it doesn't get much coverage publicly because it's all a bit complicated. Right, OK. There are so many shifts of fortune. You go all the way from 1258... There are a whole series of ups and downs for the barons and the king. Yeah. There are some incredibly dramatic events in all of this. The capture of the king on the battlefield at Lewis. Subsequently, the escape from captivity by the king's son, Edward. Um, disguise, uh, cheating, uh, you know, all of this trickery that yeah. goes on. There are fantastic stories in this, but it's all a bit too complicated. It isn't right. just sort of black and white. Right, OK. So Simon's suddenly the most powerful man in England. What, what's, his, what's his brief period of rule like? There's a good side and a bad side to de Montfort's rule. 
The good side is he tries to enact reform. He tries to do the right thing. They reenact the provisions. They reissue Magna Carta. Um, they make the king say that he's going to rule in peace and harmony with his barons. That's all good. And in the longer term, what what it's that period is famous for is that in a desperate measure to buy support, Simon summoned a parliament to which he called not any representatives of the counties, the shires, but representatives of the boroughs. Now, that's the first time that we have the meeting of what later became the House of Commons, a commons made up of the boroughs and the shires. That's the franchise that lasted into the 19th century. It's seen as the origins of modern Parliament. This is a real landmark event then in, in English British history. It's a massively significant event. And if yeah. you've gone to school in the 19th century, that was widely taught. Sam yeah. de Montfort is a hero of the Victorians right. as the father of Parliament. The other downside of that regime is that Simon began enriching himself and above all his sons. And his sons basically make hay. They seize the resources of their rivals. They take extra legal measures against all sorts of other barons. They cheat a man, a Sussex landowner called William de Breos. They cheat him out of inheritance. And they behave in a really disgraceful fashion. And that causes resentment, I guess. That causes all sorts of resentment. And above all, it encourages the younger generation of barons and knights, who previously might have looked to Montfort as a leader. It encourages them basically to abandon Montfort. The other thing there, too, right. is that Montfort, to buy military support, has to go into alliance with the Welsh. Now, the Welsh are the arch enemies of all the marcher barons of the west of England. They are the enemy. For yeah. Montfort to be in alliance with the Welsh now is a very, very difficult political situation and turns a lot of the Welsh marchers against de Montfort. Right, OK. So, um, where did it start going wrong for him? I mean, could you tell me about, actually about Edward's escape? That sounds that sounds quite an interesting incident. Edward at Gloucester, held in captivity at Gloucester, um, held in a sort of fairly luxurious captivity, yeah. says one day that he will he'd like to exercise a horse outside the walls of Gloucester, and of course will return immediately, and doesn't just rides off into the distance. This has all been pre-planned, right. and away he goes. Right. Um, How much of a turning point was that in in the war? Pretty significant. Because Edward right. is Edward has a brain and a military capacity that Henry the Third just lacked. Right. Okay. Edward is a real military leader. Right. Uh, on the model of Montfort, you know, he's learned right. a lot from his uncle. So, it, what's Henry doing at this time? Then he's he's essentially under arrest as well. Henry right? Henry is sitting at court yeah. pretending to be king, whilst Montfort actually reigns. Right. As so Montfort's king in the strings. If Montfort would have won this war, would Henry have ever been king again? I very much or doubt nominal it. king? Yeah, I very much doubt right. that, that there was any comeback. Once yeah. you've actually seized power like that, what king is going to accept that, that, that they either come back and pardon you yeah. or that they remain under that degree of captivity? Right. The king's wife, Eleanor of Provence, she goes off and begins building up an army in France. The king's uncle, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Boniface of Savoy, goes to France, begins building up a mercenary army. The, the only way that that sort of dispute is going to end is in bloodshed. Right, okay. There's no example in the 13th century short of deposing a king. The Portuguese deposed a king in the 1240s. There's no real way of getting rid of a useless king. Right, OK. So, Edward escapes. What happens next? Edward musters an army... In alliance with the marchers, these, these barons of the Welsh marches who really don't approve of Montfort's alliance with the Welsh, Montfort attempts to link up with the Welsh, but his soldiers don't find the Welsh easy to cooperate with, apart from anything else because they have very different diet. They don't eat bread, they eat meat. Um, Wales is a scary place. And those two armies eventually come to blows at Evesham in August 1265. So a year after the Battle of Lewis, there's another great battle at Evesham. And in that battle, Edward is entirely victorious, completely destroys Montfort's army, mutilates Montfort's body, cuts off his testicles, um, displays the body in the most shameful way, cuts off parts of the body to send to people who are Montfort's enemies. This, right. this is a real grudge match, followed by real bloodshed. Sure. Why... Why did Edward and the king's forces emerge victorious in his battle? 
Why, why was it such a big turnaround in such a short amount of time? Simon de Montfort says, or said, so it said on the day of Evesham, my nephew has learnt his lesson well. In other words, Edward used the sort of trickery and techniques against Montfort that Montfort himself was famous for using in his earlier campaigns. So Edward came of age at Evesham. He really made his mark as a military commander. How many men would have been involved in this battle? You tell me. All the estimates of medieval armies are way, way out. They're generally massively exaggerated. We're probably talking of an army on both sides of mm, thousands, maybe, certainly several hundred. This is a big, big battle. At Lewis, a year before, we're probably talking about an even bigger battle because there the Londoners turned up in large numbers. So there you do actually have a real involvement by the lower orders, not just by the barons and the knights. But we're talking about a big clash. Yeah, sure. How long would it have gone on for? Um, Evesham went on a long time, yeah. so it, it, it really is a slaughter. It's it's as bad as Hastings in 1066, which turns right. into a massacre. Yeah, it's as bad as those wars of those battles of the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century that turn into real real killing fields, sure. r- real massacres. So was the fact that um, Henry and Edward were related to Simon, did that make it even more bitter, the, the family aspect of this clash? Yeah, there's a, there's a nasty um, family aspect to all of this. And the worst, the most vicious sorts of wars are always civil wars. Mm. <clears throat> and there's also this sense, I think, that what can you do to resolve a political situation that's reached that sort of stalemate? The only way that you are ever going to resolve those situations is through bloodshed. Sure. Now, the kings of England... John maybe murdered his nephew, but it was all done in secret behind castle walls. This is the first time since the Norman Conquest where real political leaders are killed on the field of battle by a king of England. That's terribly significant because it really alters the dynamic of warfare thereafter. It leads on to the murdering of earls, the the deliberate slaying of the upper classes, that becomes a feature of English warfare in the 14th and 15th centuries. So it's in some ways a precursor to the Wars of the Roses in that respect. Very much so. Um, If we're looking at the trajectory of chivalry, we go from this phase where really things are pretty well regulated. There are wars, but there aren't real killings. After Evesham, that changes. And Edward I takes up that lesson against the Welsh and then against the Scots of real vicious warfare involving real bloodshed amongst the upper classes. Where does Kenilworth come into the story then? Kenilworth was the great fortress of Simon de Montfort. He'd been given it as part of his financial settlement with the king, and that was a very bitter settlement that itself had caused all sorts of problems earlier on. Um, It's an incredible defended site, as as we've seen today. It really is a magnificent site. So it was built um, in the 12th century, am I right to say it? The the local theory here is it's put up in the 1120s, 1130s by the Clinton family, who were promoted at Kenilworth as a check on the authority of the Earls of Warwick, who Henry I was worried were growing too powerful. And you can apparently see from the top of the keep here, you could see to Warwick itself. So there's an element here of I've got my eye on you, controlling one baron using another baron. It's a huge castle, really well defended. How how does it? So what happens then after after the after Evesham? Um, after Evesham, so we're talking about a massive defended uh, site. Yeah. I don't know how many acres are in this castle wall, but it's an enormous site. Sure. And the lake stretches for about a mile. The the river is deliberately dammed to create this completely artificial landscape. You can't approach the castle walls at all by the water. Even by boat, it's going to be incredibly difficult. And there's really only one point of access to the main gates of the castle, and that's heavily defended. Now, Kenilworth was already in the story of Evesham because just before the Battle of Evesham, Simon de Montfort's son another Simon de Montfort, known as Simon the Younger, had camped outside the castle with his men and had been surprised here by Edward I, by the king's son, Edward, 
who'd seized a large part of their baggage train, taken various prisoners, but above all seized their banners. And when Edward I appeared on the battlefield at Evesham, he appeared carrying the banners of Simon de Montfort's own son, so that the baronial army was completely confused at Evesham. They thought that they were about to join forces with the army of Simon's son. In fact, this was the army of Edward, disguised as a Montfortian force. So even before Evesham, there was involvement here. After Evesham, the castle didn't surrender to the king. After Evesham, there was a massive seizure, thousands yeah. of manors across England, yeah. um, seized by the um, barons um, who had fought for the king um, as a, an act of luck, just a great windfall of land. And across England, there, the fighting continued, royalist forces continued to clash with baronial forces, places like Ely refused to surrender to the king, the city of London refused to surrender to the king, the king's forces really were still not in control of the country. Right. The king himself was released on the field of Evesham, very nearly killed in the battle. So he was still under... He was there. He was in the baggage train of Sunderland. With, with Simon at the time. He was there on the battlefield. And he almost, basically was almost killed by his own forces. Very, very nearly killed. Oh, right, rescued okay. by yeah. a friend of Edward's called Roger de Laban. Yeah. And rescued only because he shouted out, we're told, I am Henry of Windsor, your king. Oh, right, it, it, yeah. We're in a yeah. real sort of slaughter here, yeah. with, the, with the king just about to be bopped yeah. at the moment where he cries out that he right, is king. Okay. So the king obviously has undergone what we would call post-traumatic shock in all of this. Mm. Whether he was fully in control of what was going on, again, is not clear. There's a complete free-for-all for about six months after Evesham with the widespread seizure of these resources by the barons on the make. Yeah, sure. And then, so, basically, the Bar Baron's forces after the Battle of Eastern were centred here then in Kenilworth Castle. Here and in London and in yeah. the Isle of Ely. But right. th these, these are all locations where there was a major focus of baronial interest. Right, OK. And lots of people who really didn't know what to do would have made their way here. Yeah, yeah. Because sure. they all wanted to club together and try and find a solution to what was clearly a complete anarchy throughout sure. England. So how was the siege finally broken? Uh, through negotiation. Um, the, the king offered terms to the garrison. So a, a thing was negotiated called the Dictum of Kenilworth. Now, a large part of that was actually law. And what the Dictum of Kenilworth said to a large extent was that the king was to be in charge of the country. The king was to rule. And all of the provisions that had been put in place at Oxford and at Westminster from 1258 onwards were hereby officially annulled. But he'd also held out some hope that the rebels would be allowed to make peace with the king and could get back their lands if they paid a very heavy ransom. So there was a sliding scale established. You would pay between one and five times the annual value for a manor to have your manor back. The purchase price of land at this time is about 10 times. So we're talking about buying back your own house. Let's say your house is worth £150,000. You can buy it back for £75,000 if you are a really bad rebel. And if you're not so bad a rebel, you're paying a fine of, in modern terms, about £15,000. Right. So it, it, it's conceivable that that was a that was a settlement that could actually work. Yeah. The problem with it was that the barons themselves didn't control the land. They didn't actually control the manors or the income from those manors. And there followed after the siege of Kenilworth, there followed another period of six months where the barons still wouldn't come to terms until the king agreed that they could have their lands back and then use the annual income from those lands to pay off the ransoms that were owed. So, in other words, really, after Evesham, there is two years of chaos and anarchy sure. before any sort of settlement is reached. What, for you, is the main legacy of the Second Baron's War? There are all sorts of consequences that flow from this. One is Parliament. Another is the increasing violence in relations between King and Barons. And I think also the awareness that really now, if you want to rebel against a king, the only way of dealing with a king is to kill him. Right, okay. So you can say, if, if rebellion is a 50-year cyclical, cyclical thing, it takes place roughly every 50 years, 
Roughly 50 years after Evesham, the barons rebel against Henry III's grandson, Edward II, and what do they do? The only thing they can do now is kill him. They, right. they have to get rid of him. They have to save a nuclear option, yeah. basically. Absolutely. Yeah. They've, they've yeah. tried it in the 1260s. It doesn't work. Even if you keep yeah. the king a captive, it isn't going to work. So we get that increasing violence of English politics. But you've also got this genesis of, par- of modern parliament. Of modern parliament. Yeah. As a sort of safety valve. Yeah. So Edward I actually takes up Montfort's idea of parliament and turns it against the critics of the king. He actually uses parliament as a means of criticising his own ministers, focusing all the grievances, not now against the king in person, but against the king's government, and as a result posing as a a friend of the barons, as a friend, a, a mighty warrior, victorious in Wales, victorious in Scotland. So it actually works out quite well for him then. For Edward I, things work out... Edward I learnt an awful lot of lessons here. One other thing. The the, the landed settlement after Evesham gave an enormous landed endowment to the king's younger son, Edmund. He was the one who was going to rule Sicily. Total nonsense. Never realistic possibility. But instead of Sicily, he now gained this vast estate that had belonged to Montfort and other rebels. We call it the Duchy of Lancaster... And it became a major focus of politics in the 14th century. And it's with the resources of the Duchy of Lancaster that in the 14th century, the future Henry Bolingbroke rebels against the king, can actually pose as a real threat to the king, and seizes power in 1399. So from that, we go on to the Wars of the Roses. But you could say that the Wars of the Roses, although they're 150 years in the future, 200 years in the future... They, they were really germinating here in 1266. Sorry, so the Duchy of Lancaster, even though it's called the Duchy of Lancaster, is actually based it's around ba- It's based on a combination of estates that were seized from the then Earls of Derby, who yeah. also rebelled with Montfort, yeah. and from Montfort's Earldom of Leicester. But this castle, you can see the remains of it today. John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster in the um, 14th century, um, he built a great hall here. This is one of the major centres of the Duchy of Lancaster in the 14th century. One final question. Is it fair to call Simon de Montfort the father of English democracy? Was that stretching it a bit far? This raises a problem for um, the de Montfort University in Leicester, which is named after Sam de Montfort. And yet it's named after a bigot and a rebel and a traitor and an anti-Semite and a really vicious uh, religious fanatic, Sam de Montfort, who clearly commanded the loyalty of a large number of barons and knights, but was a very, very dangerous figure. So... To see this figure as the father of democracy, well, in some ways, yes, he sets up a parliament to support his regime. But a bit like Oliver Cromwell, this is a, this is a figure of light and shade. This is not, not necessarily a very heroic figure. That was Spencer Mizzen and Professor Nicholas Vincent on location at Kenilworth Castle. You can find out more about the castle at english-heritage.org.uk. Meanwhile, you can read a piece by Spencer and Nicholas about the Second Barons' War in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is on sale now. Okay, well, that is almost it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we're going to be talking to Anthony Beaver about Hitler's doomed attempt to conquer the Soviet Union. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.